Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I had to go about it, write it out, and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. This is the Final Word Cricket Podcast. Uh, Jeff Lemon coming to you from Austin, Texas. And joining us on the show today is Daniel Norcross from Tooting Beck. Uh, sister cities, if you will. And, and uh, nice to have you with us with, with Adam Collins on leave, on holiday for a week. He's not working a bit. He's still working some of the time, but he is ostensibly sitting by a pool somewhere attempting to not work, so we will fill in in his stead. Hi, Dan. Do you honestly really believe that that's happening? I mean, I, I've watched his Twitter activity today, and I was thinking about nothing but Rach and Winnie and the promise that it would be all about holiday. This would be all about devotion to family and promenading and eating at sensible times, mm-hmm. and things like that. Mm-hmm. I've seen a lot of AFL tweets going out. Yep. I've seen fascination with footy grounds, mm-hmm. some kind of lacrimose thing happening hither and yon. I don't know. I don't know if he's. I don't know. That if he's is not that working. is holiday. That's holiday, Collins. If he's if he's um, posting about football instead of cricket, then he's officially on holiday. That's that's how it okay. works. That's how you know. I'm, I'm sure if I if I checked our shared YouTube results, I'm sure I'd find a lot of like late '80s AFL games involving Hawthorne and that sort of thing um, popping up, and and maybe a few dance floor bangers at the same time. But um, I haven't spoken to you in quite a while. Um, we've been we were both in England, but we were in other parts of the country, different bits, doing different things. I was in Birmingham at the Commonwealth Games. You've been bouncing around doing uh, hundred matches and other things, and and sort of gearing up for for um, well, the test series against South Africa starts pretty soon, so I imagine you'll be uh, pretty invested in that as well. Um, tell me how you are, Daniel. Well, do you know what I am? I'm, I'm a bit discombobulated by okay. things, really. Is I, I've felt that there's been quite a lot of cricket mm-hmm. that's been happening in a much shortened space of time than it normally would. So, mm-hmm. ordinarily, people forget these things. There was a rather splendid... A tweet somebody put out pointing out the length of the English cricket season and the amount of days of cricket that an average county cricketer will play. And the average number of days has gone down ever so slightly in the last mm. 30 years, but the length of time over which it takes place has increased from about 137 days in 1982 to about 180 days in 2022. <laughs> so you would think that that would make for a quieter pace of life. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, for the international commentator... What's happened is that they don't play any games in May anymore mm. because of the IPL. 
And they were, they were doing that back in 2019. You know, there was a yep. one-day series against Pakistan. Then the World Cup began in May, if mm. you recall. May 30th, I think. Uh, before. Exactly. So you got quite a lot of your assignments spread out. But I had four test matches back-to-back. And then when that ended, there were various white ball games, some involving England's men, some involving England's women. So you like, went from one kind of tournament to the other, trying to remember which context you were talking in. And I think what was that? I think there was a game of international cricket played by either men or women mm-hmm. on all but about 10 days from the 2nd of June until the end of July. And then I got a little bit of time off, which I spent going to my uh, aunt and uncle's 60th wedding anniversary and got absolutely hammered. So, um, <laughs> well, there's nothing like uh, a 60th uh, wedding anniversary to say big night out. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. It, I, isn't that bizarre? Isn't that, but I suppose I, I, I suppose I was just trying to like you know bring them back to their youth. Yep. Um, <laughs> they they obviously disappeared uh, <laughs> on stretches at around about 6:30 <laughs> in the in the evening, and we continued until until much later. In their honour, um, purely so, in their honour. Purely, purely yeah. in their honour, but largely because we'd started, and so yep. we were buggered if we were going to stop. Yep. Uh, so I had a, so so uh, that's that's sort of where I've been. My downtime mm. has been frantic, <laughs> and I've got some hundred games coming up. But you're dead right. I've got a couple of hundred games. I've got some days off in between, and then I've got three test matches, which I'm really, really looking forward to. Mm. And while all the time burbling on in the background of my life every night is. The 100. And it's like a sort of strange thing because it's been designed to be event TV. Mm -hmm. And the English season has never really been about event TV, I suppose, apart from, say, in the old days, the B&H Cup final, the Gillette Cup final, the one-day cup finals. Mm -hmm. It was a sort of meandering mess that you understood. You had a fairly good idea when test matches were going to happen. You knew three-day cricket was going to be happening in the background, all those kind of things. But by trying to create something, we're in the middle of a heat wave mm. and my instant response to hot weather is to go and sit in my garden if I'm not working, pour myself a lengthy cocktail mm-hmm. and listen to county cricket in the garden mm. with a smoke. I mean, it's just beautiful. But, of course, there is no county cricket. In fact, the 100 doesn't start until 6.30 each night. And this isn't my, my gripe with the 100. If it, indeed, if I had a gripe with the 100... But it does feel strangely weird mm. to be on a really hot day in summer and not be able to just listen to, you know, four-day cricket mm. between Surrey and a another. Yeah. So I'm all over. I'm all over the place, Jeffrey. And, and, and you've asked me how I am. What the hell are you doing in Austin, Texas? <laughs> well, I'm starting a preliminary escape from cricket for a little while. I'm obviously doing this very badly because. Um, I just recorded a show with Simon Hughes and now I'm recording a show with you about cricket and this is the first day that I've been here. But I'm, I'm trying to ease myself out. I'm, I'm weaning myself off it so that I think I'll still be doing the show next week and then maybe the week after that I'll, I'll switch off for a couple of weeks and there will be A and others getting involved in the show as well. But I just wanted to do something different, Daniel. I just thought, well, oh, I, yeah. I could stay in England and watch the test matches or I could go and drive a van to New Orleans and Memphis and then go and sit in the desert and be somewhere out of range, you know, be somewhere where I don't have to think about who did what in a cricket match for a little while, which, as much as I love it, sometimes you've got to stop. Sometimes you've got to get in ahead, get in before you have the breakdown and switch yourself off for a bit. So that's what, the plan. But what, but, 
why America? I'm, I'm intrigued because I've often thought about this, mm. and I've got a hankering to escape to mm. Costa Rica. Okay, because it's the happiest country in the world. Right. Well, according uh, to various happiness indexes, in- uh, and I don't quite know why it is. And the only thing that's putting me off is the size of their lizards. Mm. Big lizards. They've got big lizards and a lot of spiders. I mean, it's, it sort of comes with the territory, almost literally. In yeah. fact, literally. Mm. It does come with, with <laughs> the, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of hot and wet yeah. and lush and beautiful and everyone's happy. Yeah. And, you know, even the lizards are overfed. Okay. Uh, but what, so why, why America? And why start in Austin to make your way to New Orleans? Not, well, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. I'm just intrigued. No, no. Oh, well, I'm I'm linking up with uh, with a, a, my travel buddy, and we're gonna drive a van, and that's where the van was. It was in Austin, so Austin is where I had to arrive in order to begin Ooh. things. And it turns out there's a direct flight from London to Austin, which I didn't know, but uh, that seemed like. Are you gonna stay in? The, are you gonna live in the van? Some of the time, yeah. Not all of it. Oh, lovely! But, but um, when necessary. When you say van, is it is it a Winnebago or is it like a bona fide van? I no, mean, it's it like it, the, yeah. va- the van that that, um, that that Saul Goodman gets tossed around in at the back of in Better Call Saul when he's been picked up by Walter White and Jesse yeah, Bigman. It, it is it it's is one of them. It is one of them, um, which means it was slightly disconcerting getting picked up at the airport in that van. You know, traditionally mm. you don't want to get in a strange van that pulls up. No. But in this case, I did. And and all has worked out well so far. I'm still here. And I don't know. I mean, people could listen out for my sort of kidnap line, you know, if I if I say something along the lines of, I don't know, Wally Hammond had a, a clean health history or something like that, then, then you'll know that I'm giving you a signal <laughs> through the medium of the podcast that I need to be rescued. Uh, if I say everybody should salute when they reach 150 a fine and, and valuable milestone then you'll know but but all is well all is well um so we we're going to have a show i won't tell you what we're going to talk about because we'll just talk about a few things as they come we already sort of talked about the hundred so maybe we don't have to talk about that later but the the women's comp is about to get going uh, is that correct yes. because because it was delayed by the it commonwealth is. games and the men's comp got underway about a week ago it is, and actually, the, the women's competition is the one I'm, I'm most looking forward to. And it, it, it's not because I've got a particular animus against the men's competition. I mean, I was watching a game tonight, and I watched a bit of a game the night before, and the night before that. And a lot of the things that people say that are wrong with it, mm. namely that you know nobody will be able to connect with these teams. Well, the Northern Superchargers were playing at the time that we we're recording, and every time the Trent Rockets. Mm who are a team for Australian fans who nominally come from Nottingham, which is mm-hmm. about 100 miles away from Leeds. Yep. Whenever they took a wicket or scored some runs, the entire place went silent. And whenever the inverse happened, the entire place went completely berserk. So huh. uh, these confected teams are resonating with the fans that turn up. Hmm. It's just I'm not yet convinced by the quality of the cricket because we watch so much franchise cricket and it's... The hot topic at the moment, how much is franchise cricket going to reshape the world of cricket that we're looking at? Mm-hmm. People have been talking about it and around it for about 15 years, 10 or 15 years, and it's sort of coming into sharp focus right now. Uh, but the issue, I think, is that the quality of the teams, because we watch so much of it, you know, mm. watch the Pakistan Super League, watch the CPL, watch the IPL, watch the Big Bash, and the Big Bash has sort of been getting a little bit progressively worse... And the 100 sort of resembles the Big Bash in a way, mm. only with, like, their English players that 
that English people don't recognise the Australian players in the big yep. bash, necessarily all of them, and Australians wouldn't recognise some of these other English players. And then sure. there's a, some players that you do recognise, and then there's a kind of a lack of players, and that has slightly baffled me. I mean, I don't know why Chris Gale wasn't snapped up for £125,000 or David Warner, and apparently we keep on being told by you know, analysts that the reason is that they wouldn't be available for the whole tournament. But right. I, didn't, I didn't think the point of the tournament was to win. I thought mm. the point of the tournament was to infuse young people in England yes. about cricket. Put on the best show. Exactly. So who cares who wins? Just, mm. just get, get Chris Gale, get him out there, wheel him out there, stick mm-hmm. him in a bath chair at short <laughs> fine leg, you know, and then let him stand there and aim a few sixes, uh-huh. a couple of which will come off. He'll yep. miss a couple. The crowd will be a bit disappointed, but they'll have seen him. Someone will say universe boss annoyingly a few times mm-hmm. on commentary. Yep. And all will be right with the competition. But they haven't done that. They've mm. given a friend of mine, Laurie Evans, a lovely guy, they've given him 125000 instead. And I'm delighted for him. Absolutely delighted. He deserves it. But I didn't think that was the point of the competition. Whereas the women's competition, mm. I'm really quite excited for this year because... I think it it does stand a chance of competing with the women's big bash. There'll be plenty of Australians over. There is a deeper pool of good England players relative to the rest of women's cricket than there is England men players relative to the rest of world cricket. So I think that'll prop up the standard and make it genuinely good, as well as some Indians playing and whatnot. And having come off the back of the Commonwealth Games, which had really good uh, viewing figures and lots of people in the ground, uh, which you'll be able to testify to, and I want to ask you about that in in due course. I think it's that's the thing that I'm sort of most interested in, and so I find myself in a weird position, Jeff, of going to Edgbaston tomorrow for a men's hundred game that I'm sort of, yeah, okay, so that I can come back mm. the following day for the launch of the women's hundred, which is happening. The women's game is taking place unusually after the men's game. Okay, so. We're going to get an interesting insight into the dynamic of the crowd mm. because, for once, the men's game is going to start. I forget. I better, I better find out, don't I, if I'm going to commentate it. But I think it's like 2.30. So they'll be done by like 5.30. And then how many of, the, of that crowd will stay for the women's? Hopefully, nearly all of mm. them. How many of that crowd will turn up at 7 o'clock expecting to see the men's game and discovering that they got it wrong? Mm-hmm. I would say a reasonably sizable proportion because mm-hmm. of entitlement and stupidity, <laughs> of which there's a, an enormous amount a in surfeit. this country. <laughs> yeah, oh, a genuine surfeit. Yeah. Was it lampreys? And which king was it who died of a surfeit of lampreys? <laughs> it was an absolute beauty, that. How did he die of a surfeit of lampreys? I mean, for heaven's sake. Anyway. I don't even know what a lamprey <laughs> is. What is a lamprey? Is it it's a fruit? A, it's, a, it's a fish. It's a fish. A fish. It's a fish. Uh. It's a, it's a, yeah, and not a good fish. I think it's like a right. river fish. Mm. You know, quite silty, foul. Why would you want to eat more think, than one of them? Well, in those days, people had different kind of palates, didn't they? Mm. I mean, the only sweet thing on offer was honey. So uh, mud was quite attractive, I think. And it yeah. was almost umami. <laughs> for them they didn't have soy sauce back in England in 1200 it was just river silt just sprinkle some river silt on top of this dish in order to to season it Mm, the delightful flavours of river silt was was one of the Shakespearean characters who's tucking into a dish of meddlers a meddler sounds like a lamprey to me it's it's a a mysterious food that you're not quite sure what it is I think a meddler is a a type of weird fruit that you have to cook like a, a tiny quince 
Or, yeah, know. it's in there in the in the gooseberry world, isn't it? I think it's something like that. If you have too many of them, you get very rancid guts. Mm, totally. But um, anyway, to take us back to 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 the point of all this is that I do think that in terms of what the hundred rule really represents and mm. how interesting it's going to be from a cricketing journalistic perspective, it is the women's hundred yep. that intrigues me to see. You know, size of crowd, quality of game, mm-hmm. that that's really where it's at. The men's hundred sort of pottering along, being diverting, mm-hmm. happening every night, being is it appointment to view? I don't know. It's on every night. Yeah. And and I've watched it. But I really like cricket. So, yeah. So I will. <laughs> that's the thing, as so long as it, long as they put it on. It, well, it's in serious danger of attracting people who like cricket rather mm. than people who don't. Mm. <laughs> which, which was not the point, watch it. as we were firmly is, told at the start. Point. This is not for you. The, it's, it's the opposite. It's the opposite of the point. Mm. So, yes, I, I, yeah. But anyway, time will tell. Okay. I look forward to finding out. Well, we'll circle... By which I mean living long enough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll circle around to the Commonwealth Games in a, in a moment. There's a, a sad story to note this week, week, which is that Rudy Kurtzen has died, the umpire, who, who was... Such a, a big figure through the 90s and 2000s. Uh, he died in a car crash in Western Cape where he lived in South Africa. In the last couple of days, he was an umpire who, who was around at test level from 1992 through to 2010. So, you know, almost all of the sort of formative period of my cricket watching had Rudy Kurtzen there with that sort of stiff stance. And he was, a, you know, it's slightly macabre to note that his signature dismissal was called the slow death but that's what it was uh, and where he would he would raise the finger with a stiff arm so achingly slowly and he'd often take a long time to start he'd think about it for a while and then the <laughs> finger would start to move and so the player would be walking off before the finger had got all the way up and and so before Billy Bowden was doing his circus theatrics and so on Rudy already had a signature dismissal he'd, he'd already um, cornered the market on signature dismissals in a in a more sort of low fuss less ostentatious way but you know he was he was so recognizable in that way and, and was such a, a big part of cricket for those couple of decades he really was and it, he's one of those interesting well he what i think absolutely fascinates me about rudy Kirsten is something that fascinates me about south african umpires generally mm. which is that south africans in cricket are not the sort of people you say oh what a fascinating character he is you know they really are really quite black and white and relatively unnuanced um, they play their cricket that way, they do their things that way, they're very straight up and down. And yet their umpires yep. seem to have great character and quirk and oddness. Think of Maria mm. Rasmus. And Rudy was sort of... He was the first really big South African umpire, obviously. Yeah. I mean, starting straight after readmission of South Africa into cricket. And he was a huge part of my watching England do appallingly badly in the 90s as well. <laughs> the, the, you know, we'd only just had neutral umpires come in, and when a neutral umpire comes in and actually mm. gives your players out in that way, it's like, it was quite cruel, but also <laughs> very funny because there, <laughs> there was a slight smile that would tease across his yeah. lips. And also, he could, he could be very, um, he could be very no- I say naughty, I don't know whether he did it deliberately oh, or not, but there's a famous time Rudy. against... <laughs> naughty, naughty Rudy. I guess Justin Langer that uh, uh, was put out today on Rob Linda, and uh, and it was a it was a beautiful one where actually I think he probably got the decision wrong. I think Antini had got him out LBW, but Langer was padding up to a ball delivered over the wicket to the left-handed Langer, and it just pitched in line, and it just sort of slightly held its line, but 
Kurtzen on, on the appeal suddenly put his finger up quickly. But of course, that meant it's not out because yep. it's Rudy. But he's put his finger up quickly, but was pointing towards it going down the offside. <laughs> Justin Langer had seen the finger come up and, oh my God, he's given me out. He gave, he gave me out. And, and, and Rudy just plays with him and plays with the TD just for a little bit longer and then smiles again. Uh, yeah, he was just uh, a beautifully authoritative presence. And his size, his bulk, the fact that he was kind of chiselled there as well, mm. like made you feel that the game was in these incredibly safe hands. But I think it was the smile that was... You know, people talk inanely about smiles. They talk about, you know, women tennis players. She plays with a smile on her face. I don't mm. care Yeah, <laughs> she plays with a smile on her face or not. But when an umpire is kind of smiling, there's something a little bit more fun about it. Because essentially, being, a, being an umpire is a dour miserable. You're asked to make decisions. Out, not sure. out. It's all very kind of straight black and white. Mm. And here's a South African slowly and cruelly pointing. And he, he didn't just raise the finger slowly, he pointed it at you. Yes, <laughs> yes. The dismissal went you. at you first. You are oh, out. And then it went up into the air out. for the scorers. It was a two-part <laughs> move. Was, that's yeah. right, yeah. It was lovely. It was lovely. I, I, I'm, yeah, I'm sad. I'm, I'm terribly sad. And if you think about it, you know, you've just given the, the span of his career, 92 to 2010. And there have been too many cricketers recently who played in that era, who have mm. died, Andrew Simons and Shane Warne. And um, I'm not a Christian, unfortunately. Dean Jones. I, I, I sort of, Dean Jones, I sort of, I sort of wish I was so that I could imagine Pearly Gates where these three cricketers are all having a perfectly fine time, you know, <laughs> play, playing perfect, perfectly comfortably up in the Elysian Fields and then Rudy yep. Kurtz and turns up and goes, ah, ah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm here to spoil that fun, boys. Right. Yeah. <laughs> let's, let's sort this out. Yeah. Well, so, he, yeah. He's definitely... If you're a believer, believe that. He's part of he's part of final word lexicon because Adam and I will often say to each other, uh, rock and roll that for me, Rudy, and which makes no sense because we're doing it in his accent and also talking to him, but that's just how it's transpired. That's just now a thing that you say. Anytime an umpire is rocking and rolling it, you have to say, rock and roll that for me, Rudy. Thanks. Um, and, and I, you know, I mostly remember him for um, giving Kumar Sangakkara out on 192 when the ball came off his helmet. So that's probably unfair because he made a lot more right decisions than he did wrong. But um, it is, it is how I recall him that day. And, and and I liked the fact he went and found Sangakkara after the test and apologised to him for getting the decision wrong when, when Jeff, you know, Sri Lanka no, were chasing no, a very unlikely total, but Sangakkara was in the form of his life. No one is going to remember an umpire for the right decisions they mm. make, are they? True. <laughs> and, that's, and that is quite without doubt why what they do is a selfless act of wonder mm. and it's why we should never, ever argue with them. Because when they get it right, we all forget it. Yep. We give them no credit for being right. We only, we only remember the ones that were wrong. Sure. Uh, yes, he was there in 2007 to the World Cup final that finished in the dark. He was third umpire that day. But yes, he, he should be remembered for the things he got right. And he's, he's broadly remembered for being scrupulous and, and fair and, and good-natured, someone who ran the game with authority but was, was, uh, was kind to the players as well. So commiserations to his family and, and friends. It's, a, it's a, a sad story to have come through. So the Commonwealth Games, uh, I, w I was there doing the commentary for... BBC Radio, which was great fun um, being involved with it. We had a, a couple of non-playing days, but aside from that, it was cricket back-to-back -back for through 11 days. You'd have a, a morning game, have a few hours break in the afternoon, come back for an evening game, 
eight teams, Barbados going around, which was fun, even though they weren't very good. Um, it was it was still nice to see a, another team, a sort of new, a, a partial version of that West Indies team, I suppose. Um, Australia won the thing because, of course, they did. India played really well. The, the India-England semi-final was, was a cracker. It was such a good game, decided by four runs in the end. And, you know, England had their chances and, and fumbled it. And then they were... They were so upset at having done that that they completely botched the bronze medal game. They really just didn't turn up mentally for that. And New Zealand did, which, you know, fair play to them. They, New Zealand are not a very good cricket team at the moment, but they managed to get the job done when they needed to. I want to ask you about that game mm. because, uh, scandalously, of course, at the time of recording, I still haven't got round to watching that game because I was at my, mm. my uh, aunt and uncle's 60th wedding anniversary when it was taking place. And... Having watched the narrative of that tournament and seen how England had played against South Africa, and I guess more importantly how South Africa had played against England, mm. and seen how New Zealand had played against England in the uh, Commonwealth Games match that they played before that. Yeah, that was awful. Like one of the it worst was, it was matches of cricket I've yeah. ever seen. It was, 71 it was for nine or something off 20 overs. It was painful. It was, it, it was painful beyond belief. I suppose you got out of there a little bit early, which is, might have helped yep. the pain. But... Um, <laughs> but I'd sort of reached this thought that, well, Australia are better than everyone mm. by a distance and England are better than pretty much everyone else by a distance, mm. except possibly India. And then um, discovered that England had absolutely botched that game. So did, you said they just didn't turn up. It was um, it was just, what happened? What happened, yeah, what happened well, Jeff? Well, Tell they, me. they batted first and they got... Bold. Did they get bowled out? Or were they... I can't quite remember the scoreline anymore. 100 and, 100 and less than that. 110, 109, 110, thereabouts. They were... They just weren't in it, you know. I mean, Nat Siver came out and hit a couple of nice shots, but was just then started swinging at everything and, and got bowled. And they really looked like a hungover team, a sort of emotionally hungover team, because I'm sure that they had come into that tournament expecting almost to make the final at least, you know. They, they would have thought they'd be playing off in, in the final match and having bombed out of the semi-final which they should have won at one point they you know they were run chasing they needed 33 off the last four overs they've got Siver and Amy Jones at the crease they've got seven wickets in hand you should find a way to get home from there and India bowled really well and so they didn't but you know they'd, they'd had such high hopes coming in whereas New Zealand I'm I'm pretty confident that going into a semi-final against Australia New Zealand were not expecting to win they thought they you know they might have an upset on the day but they wouldn't have been overly disappointed by being knocked out because they they would have more realistically been targeting a bronze. And so, you know, New Zealand win when Sophie Devine or Susie Bates makes runs and that happened. You know, Bates got them off to a quick start, Devine made 50 and, and happy days off they go. So, yeah, it, it really looked like two teams who had different expectations and the one with more modest expectations was the one that got mm. through. Just a word on Mandana though, because her 60 in 30-odd mm. balls against England in that semi-final was absolutely fantastic. Mm. I mean, watching India in that power play, that's, I think, what freaked out England because mm. it wasn't Shafali Verma doing it. Yeah. And if, if Mandan is going to play at that level and Verma's going to grow into the player that mm. it looks like she will do, that is a formidable opening pairing in T20. It can make India a serious, serious threat, couldn't it? Yeah, I think I think it will. And they've got Rodriguez, who's starting to blossom, who did really well at number three as well. And then you've got Harman Preet coming in at four. You've got someone like Pucha Vastraka who can float up if they need someone to come in uh, to hit with a few overs to go. You know, they've got 
these developing options, this developing depth, Deepthi Sharma's still a work in progress, I think, with the bat, really. She's almost more valuable for her bowling now. And she, you know, she oh, bowled yeah. really well through the tournament, um, didn't score particularly quickly. But they've got batting depth and they've got players like Snairana coming in at, you know, eight or nine. That tells you that this is a, a team that can play. You know, this is a team that can match up in terms of depth. I think they bat deeper than England and... No one bats quite as deep as Australia, but in, India are the most likely to be able to compete on that level. So, yeah, the, the Mandana innings was one of the best I've seen in T20 cricket. It was so clean, it was so precise and controlled. You know, every there wasn't a miscue. Every shot that she played went where it was supposed to. She's added six hitting. I mean, she's always been able to hit a six once in a while, but she reeled off three in quick time in that innings. And, yeah, they were sort of a bit shell-shocked by that England. They, they did fight their way back into the game with the ball but um you know there was they lost composure at the end with the bat when they needed it so they'll be very very unhappy i mentioned this thing on the daily show about the england not the cricket team but the broader commonwealth games team uh, having a jacket that had a medal pocket stitched into it that you that you could pop your medal in which um which sophie divine had found very amusing when doing an interview she said um, so Ooh. I think I think this got edited somewhat, but she said, "Typical fucking England, <laughs> so arrogant. You've got a metal pocket in your uniforms." So Sophie's got one around her neck, and, and England have an empty pocket. Well, fair enough, and fair play to them because um, you know they, they look like an absolute rabble when they first played, and you couldn't have two more contrasting matches against mm. each other. But can we talk a little bit about the indestructible Jess Jonathan? Sure, because the thing that I think is so upsetting to all other non-Australians about the Australian women's team is that when you think you've got them on the rack, somebody turns up and, and sorts them out. But when Jess Jonathan is doing that, and they, they they turn their backs on Jess Jonathan, she just bowled these kind of tedious darts and she didn't seem to have quite the power that the modern game was you know, moving towards. And yet, what, in the course of a year, she's now... She's back, she's more niggardly than ever, mm. she's more useful than ever, and then when you talk about their incredible batting lineup, it's because Jess Jonathan's at, what, nine, nine ten, yeah. something, nine, yep. absurd, which is a testament to their strength and their power, but she's, she's kind of like an indestructible robot. <laughs> <laughs> she's like some kind of non-stopping school guy. So the thing with Jonathan is that when they flirted with leaving her out of the team, a little bit. I think she was the number one ranked bowler in the world in, I can't remember which format mm. it was, but one of them. So, I mean, that gives you an idea of the depth in Australian cricket. They were like, oh, okay, you're, you're number one, but you, you know, we want to try other kinds of bowler. They had competition for, for places, but she, she just showed, you know, as soon as she was back in the team, she just showed that you can't play without her because it's so hard to score off her. And so who do they turn to when they've got one over to bowl and they need to defend uh, what was it, 15 runs or thereabouts, off the last over of the match, they go to Jess Jonathan and she gets the last wicket and she wins the game for Australia and, of course, she does. You know, I mean, she bats four for the Brisbane Heat and clobbers runs at, at a strike rate of about 160 and then bowls like that and in the Australian team, as you say, bats nine or ten and, and can sometimes be under pressure for a spot. So it's a, it's a ridiculous thing, but I don't think she'll be being left out again anytime soon. Well, I hope not. I hope not. It's Because uh, she has a particular skill set that... Uh, is undervalued, I think, in women's cricket, which is being able to bowl at, a, at the right pace, bowl flat left arm at the right pace. Mm. I'm a big fan of Sophie Eccleston. I think she's a, a fine bowler. But she's encouraged by the, uh, I suppose, the purism 
of English thinking to, to prove that at five foot ten and bowling at 55 miles an hour, she could basically bowl like men's test match spin. Mm. When you're playing T20 and just throw the ball into the pitch and mm. undercut it and make it important. And, you, and if you do that from your height, that's going to be tricky too. And I think she's a very, very fine bowler, but Jess Jonathan has a kind of, has, has a nouse there, mm. which I've always, I've always found impressive and really annoying on commentary because it's quite difficult to describe why the ball that she's bowled is actually quite as good as it is. That, that's, that's yep. I think, what I resent most about her. I mean, she's a lovely woman and I don't resent really anything about her. But I do resent the fact that when she bowls, I've got to say that that was a really good over, but I'm struggling to describe exactly why it yes. was. Because it's sort of flat filth, but it's really skillful flat mm. filth. Mm. It does not, the ball does not need to turn an inch, maybe half an inch. Mm. That's, that's what it does, and that's, that's enough. I've asked this it's question into the pitch. A, a, lo- great. a lot of times of players who I'm on commentary with who've played against her, I'm always asking, why is she so hard to face? And sometimes they find it hard to articulate as well. You know, why is she so hard to score off? And I think it's basically, I mean, they say she mixes up the pace quite a bit within a small range, but also that she's just, she's so accurate and she bowls a length that's hard to smash because it's not full enough to swing and, and because you'll get under it too much and sky it and it's not short enough to pull, you know, and so it takes someone like... Sophie Devine, who's able to get right back on the stumps and try to pull a ball that's not short enough, and it's it's just that control of of length all the time, and the fact that she's always bowling at the stumps. So every time you miss it, your LBW or bowled. You know, there's always there's always jeopardy when when Jonathan is bowling. Um, so Australia with it's the a goal. terrific skill. Yeah, yeah, it's a terrific. It's a ter- terrific, terrific skill. One that we that, that we underestimate as we search for the magic ball that will turn a foot and a half. Because that's what gets us going. Yeah, exactly. But really, but really, if, if you're going to watch it, if you're going to watch a lot of T Twenty folks, then look at Rashid Khan. Mm-hmm. It's a similar principle. Yep. It's, the ball is straight, and it never quite gets up. It never quite bounces, but it does skid. Yep. And it's a brilliant, it's a brilliant skill to have. Hi, I'm Isha Gua, and you're listening to the Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Levin. So we'll, we'll play a game, Daniel. Let's play a little bit of Nerd Pledge. Nerd Pledge, the game that we oh, play hooray. with the people on the internet. Here's how it works. People fund the show by sending in contributions that are not normal amounts of currency but very specific amounts because that number relates to cricket in some way and we have to work out what the number means. Our Nerd Pledge this week comes from Dom Philp. It is £2.85 and Dom says... It's actually just 85, but I couldn't afford 85 quid a month. That doesn't mean I love the show any less. So I've got an answer for this. I've prepared an answer, but I thought I'll put you on the spot. Does 85 set off anything in your brain if you think of... Is 85 a story number in cricket? I I think David Gower's hit a really important and interesting 85. Mm -hmm. Um, Oh, it feels like it was against... I can't remember if it was against... Feels like it might even have been against New Zealand, eighty-five. I mean, obviously the year eighty-five yep. is, uh, is was a wonderful year of mayhem and madness. Yep. Uh, not least because of Ian Botham's agent, mm. Tim Hudson. But mm-hmm. that's another story. Well, so we could have made a lot out of that. Eighty-five. Eight. Oh, now what did? Oh no, I think it was eighty-three, wasn't it? That um, Eddie Painter got when he got off his sick bed. 
Or was it 85? Yeah. Oh, I'm, I, off the top of my head, I'm not quite sure. Oh, it's something like that at, at Brisbane in 1932-3. Could have done. I'm taking this in a different direction, not a score, oh, but something that happened. Something, no, no, not, not, a, not a wicket analysis, but in the year 1981, something happened that was 85. Uh, and that was that Dennis Lilly set the world record for wickets in a calendar year in Test cricket. He, t- he took 85 wickets in the year, beating Kapil Dev 74 from 1979. Uh, this is a year when Lily toured England for the Ashes in 81, that famous series, so there is a Botham connection there. Either side of that, Australia played India, Pakistan and one test against the West Indies at home in that year. So 25 innings that Lily bowls in. He only takes five for on five occasions, which was actually less than I expected, but he's super consistent. He took four wickets in an innings on eight different occasions through the year. Only went wicketless twice. And I thought the particularly fun bit about this is that having broken the record for wickets in a year in the second last test that he played that year, he goes on to take 10 wickets against the Windies in that one test and in so doing goes past Lance Gibbs with 309 test wickets to take the world record for the total. So he breaks the year record in one test, the world record in the next... Botham and Gatting were the two players he got out most five times apiece. And I wondered if you had any memories of 1981 and Lily in 81 and, uh, you know, I mean... I do. That, that particular... I do. I do. And, and, well, the, the, the biggest memory of it is that um, Lily and Thompson were over. Thompson was there in 81 as well, but was a vastly di- diminished bowler. And Lily had arrived with pneumonia. We'd told he'd had this terrible pneumonia and he'd been recovering from it for about two or three months. And as a result, because he'd had pneumonia, he had to change his shirt an abnormal number of times. Right. Which essentially meant that after Lily bowled a spell, he went off to change his shirt <laughs> and a subfielder was brought on for quite a while. Right. Because <laughs> Lily took a while changing his shirt, so obviously he had to choose the right shirt, mm-hmm. had to get the right number of buttons yep. undone. Yep. And was forever getting it slightly wrong and the mirrors getting all it, these grounds. Getting it caught on, it, on his muscles as he tried to take it off. But, and, yeah. Things like that. And, of course, there were probably various other things that he had to do because of his pneumonia, mm. which had happened months and months before. <laughs> and I just remember the sort of... the, the part, You know, all Ashes series are dreadfully partisan, mm. but the partisan nature of the commentary would then become deeply cynical about mm-hmm. Lily's shirt change, right. which was a testament to how much England basically feared him because yep. he, he was a bowler. That, in the Lily and Thompson era, and I sort of grew up in it, I was aware of it in 75 when I was six as mm. a thing to be scared of. My father was scared of them as, as individuals, so they became, a, they became one person, Lily and Thompson. Yep. And then we got to 81, and because they were diminished, we felt more confident and we thought we were in with a chance and then Lily bowled about well we don't know because speed guns weren't around at the time Mm. but folklore and what other cricketers were telling you was that his pace was down but his accuracy and his movement was up Mm. and so we then sort of just basically became fixated with his metronomic accuracy and his his action which Mm. was a thing of unbelievable beauty yeah the first beautiful action that I saw was obviously Michael Holding in 76. And then Lily and Hadley had these... They were different but similar approaches, mm. which was a sort of very much sharp and side-on. And then the whip. Um, so he didn't sling like Thompson did. Mm. He, he had a load-up, but he had a kind of repetitive load-up. And he had a menace. And, of course, he had a moustache. And he had 
the terror. He was sort of like it was in the Spofforth um, canon mm. of Australian fearfulness. Yep. Uh, you know, Gregory and MacDonald, Lindwall and Miller, Lillian Thompson. Mm-hmm. You know, they were in the, they they were part of that sort of hegemony that you were uh, brought up mm. to be petrified of. They were the bogeymen, and then when he saw him at twelve, and he wasn't as scary as Croft, right? Garner, even um, Roberts, holding. He didn't. He he didn't have that visceral tone because he didn't quite use the bouncer mm. as much. So he bowled more like he was in partnership with Terry Alderman, and he tended to bowl much fuller lengths and much less aggressively, but more effectively probably in English conditions because mm. in those days it was quite spongy wickets. Uh, we didn't have the drainage, so we were quite slow, mm. but you got good lateral movement and good swing. Uh, so the way he sort of adapted to English conditions was was scary because he wasn't going to kill your players in the way that Roberts and Holding yeah. were in, in days gone by. Uh, instead, he was just going to he was just going to nick you off yep. and look incredibly smug about it. <laughs> he had a tremendous <laughs> smugness, which uh, you know riled riled the Englishman. But it was all the better for it. Great theatre. Well, he was um, he was very gracious when the record eventually got broken because Shane Warne broke it in 2005. He took 96 wickets, I think it was. And so Lily did it in 13 tests. Warne did it in 15. And then the year after that, 2006, Murali gets 90 in 11 test matches because, of course, he does. So so it's been broken. How many of them were played at Gaul? Yeah, it's been broken twice and, and twice only, but... Um, they asked Lily what he thought when, I think Warren was one wicket behind him at this point, and Lily said, there's not a bit of sadness for me in passing on the record to the greatest bowler we have seen. I have always enjoyed Shane's career and what he brought to the game. He has had an amazing career, and I'm really looking forward to being at the Wacker when he breaks the record, which I thought was very nice, very gracious from a, a yeah. supposedly fearsome quick. Yeah, but that was the thing about him, really, was that he wasn't... No one's really got very bad word to say about him. Mm. Uh, Mike, Mike Brearley, I don't know if you're aware of this, but Mike Brearley on the Parkinson show did bring him up mm. once. Have you, have you seen this? Are no. you aware of this? It's, very much, it's, it's well worth Googling for all our listeners. Um, many of you will have come across this, many of you will not. So Mike Brearley is being interviewed, I think, on the eve of going out to the 79-80 right. series where England get trounced mm. 3-0. A series that wasn't for the ashes, it was just thrown in, Packer yep. was subsiding and or changing yep. and what have you. And England fulfilled this tour. And before he went, because he'd won the previous tour five one, he was on Parkinson because he was seen as a Svengali, he was seen mm. as this like ridiculous, intelligent, Renaissance man. Sure. And Parkinson, who is a Michael Parkinson, who is the biggest interviewer uh, on British TV for about twenty years. Interviews, he's you know, did Muhammad Ali and Cary Grant and all that. Like. Yeah, he's got Mike Brearley there because he loves his cricket. And uh, he asks him about this about going off to Australia. And Mike Brearley takes out a puppet dinosaur, mm. glove puppet dinosaur, and he says, uh, to well, I want you to meet my dinosaur, he's called Dennis. Mm-hmm. And Michael Barnes says, Well, tell me more about it. He says, Well, as you can see, it's got an incredibly large mouth. <laughs> he opens the mouth out, and it's got a really tiny space for the brain, <laughs> which, which, 
in retrospect, is an incredibly bold thing to yes. do when you're not a particularly good batter. Yes. <laughs> you're right. about to go to Australia and face Dennis Lilly. Uh, which, I mean, it tells you something about the sort of Jardine-esque imaginings that were mm. going on, I think, in Mike Brearley's mind. Uh, I think he probably put himself in that tradition. But, but you can't fault him for, um, for courage. Because <laughs> I'm certainly not doing that. Well, it's a it's a real. Here's one I prepared earlier. Line. I just happened to have a dinosaur puppet in my pocket oh, yeah. on the way on the way to the studio to record oh, God, this yeah. interview. So, so, so that's it's my guess. Script, it's completely scripted. Yeah, Dom. That's my guess. 85 wickets for Lily in 1981. You can send us a message. We've got a final word chat page on Discord, which you can get onto if you join the patron. And if you join the patron, you can send us a nerd pledge because that's what your number will do. You set the number, go to patreon.com slash the final word. You can sign up, you can be on the show and you can help us keep making the program that we are making. Speaking of which, I mean, that's the reason that you know we're able to say, have you come on the show? And, and, and I did the Commonwealth Games dailies with Natalie Germanos through the Com Games. We're able to pay other presenters to come on the show when you're freelance working uh, people ask you to do things for free all the time even though that's your job and it's one of the annoyances so it's a great source of comfort and and satisfaction for us that we're able to not do that we're able to pay people for their work but I just wanted to note and you know this this wasn't something that Nat was public about but she said um, she said well whatever you're going to pay me donate it to um, Ebony Rainford Brent's ACE program which I thought was a very lovely gesture from her so I just wanted to Give Nat a shout out. Oh. Not only did she make the show with me for, you know, however many nights it was through the Commonwealth Games, um, she also did that. So good on her. Too right, good on her. But let's not, you know, make that a precedent. Eh? Sure. No, that's yeah, entirely understandable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. So, right, a couple more things to cover. Um, I was heartened, Daniel, to see that um, Zimbabwe have won a couple of series against Bangladesh. They won the T20 series 2-1. They've won the first two one-dayers with one to play. So they've got both series in the bag, which given how parlous Zimbabwe cricket has been for a while, that's that's heartening in itself. And and the other thing is that Sikandar Raza has been going absolutely nuts for Zimbabwe. I mean, he's head and shoulders the best player in their team and, and has been for a long while. But through the T20s, 65 not out and then 60 and then made a duck. And in the ODIs so far, 135 not out, followed by 117 not out. So he's the leading run scorer in both series and the leading wicket taker in the one-day series so far. And Zimbabwe are, are very lucky to have someone who's, who's so passionate about playing for that team. I remember how distraught he was when they missed out on qualification for the 2019 World Cup, you know, a really tight result at the, the last gasp of that qualifying tournament. And I remember him speaking very eloquently at the time and it's clear how much it means to him to be playing for Zimbabwe. Well, it, it needs to matter to somebody, doesn't it, yeah. to play for Zimbabwe because uh, it's difficult to say, but I don't think their board makes it easy for the players uh, and they're in a very difficult uh, political situation generally it, it's not it's not the same position as, as you know being in England or uh, Australia or indeed India uh, it, it's it's problematic so mm. obviously a strong Zimbabwe when you think back to what Zimbabwe used to be with the flowers um, some great players and, mm. and humiliating England and causing David Lloyd to have a line that lives with him forever. You know, we mm -hmm. flipping murdered them when the scores were, were level. Yeah. Um, and England hadn't won. Uh, yes, it'll be fantastic. What Sikandar Raza probably the problem may well be that 
he's going to come up against interest from franchises and mm. leagues. And then Zimbabwean cricket again has to be asked that perennial question that all boards are asking themselves, and it's happening more noticeably in women's cricket actually at the moment yep. than men's, although it's men's cricket that sort of started it, is where that takes us mm. and how this process plays out. Because in women's cricket, it's distinctly disturbing. When you watch what's happened to South Africa, I'm sure you've discussed it already, but what's happened to South Africa mm. in women's cricket as a, as a result of them not really being able to play, pay their players properly, mm. uh, well, pay their players sufficiently to be more a more attractive proposition mm. than going and playing in women's leagues that, that are, quite frankly, quite lowly paid. Mm. So we're not talking about large sums of money. No. We're talking about enough money yep. to exist. And I think if people are sort of working out the differences between having smaller amounts of money, then it becomes even more likely that they're going to take the slightly larger amount of money. Yeah, I mean, the bands in the women's hundred are sort of in the range of, you know, 7,000 on one, 10,000 on another, 12,000, 15,000, something like that. Yeah, yeah we're not talking life-changing amounts of money. We're just talking uh, life-enabling amounts but of money. But that's where it becomes relevant to Zimbabwean yeah. cricket because, you know, Zimbabwean cricket is probably not massively more flush than um, Australia and English women's cricket, probably yeah. less. So, yeah. Yeah. so uh, those self-same conversations are going to be felt throughout Zimbabwean cricket. Mm. And you've kind of got this horrible battle against time, haven't you, in which you, you could see that it's happening. You've got a player who's making your side better. Mm-hmm. You're trying to then build your team up so that you can get interest, so you can get sponsorship, mm-hmm. so you can get money, and then what wins first. And that's part of it. Yeah. It's part of the problem yeah. with emerging countries generally. Well, and, and that if you develop players who are good, then they become interesting to other places to poach. So uh, one other thing that I thought was cheering in, in the landscape, you know, where we're often saying that the bigger teams oh, yeah. need to be playing the smaller teams, is that the Asia Cup coming up, I think this should be good because... You've got Sri Lanka, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh. Then Afghanistan's playing as well. I mean, we've talked about the the ethics and, and problems around that, but you know, you've still got a, a kind of emerging team playing in that competition. And they'll have one qualifier from a qualifying pre-tournament between Singapore, Hong Kong, Kuwait, and the United Arab Emirates. So one of those four teams will win through for the sixth spot. So it'll be a T20 comp because they're using it as preparation for the T20 World Cup, all of the Asian teams, but. Uh, that's a th- that's an encouraging thing that they've made the space to bring in an associate team, um, as as well as having Afghanistan in there too. Those th- tell me those associates. Yeah, because I'm a bit disappointed Nepal haven't squeaked in there. Yeah, I'm not sure how they selected the qualifying tournaments. I'm sure some of our uh, colleagues like Andrew Nixon, who keep a much closer eye on yes. this sort of stuff, will yeah. be able to fill in the gaps there. But Singapore, Hong Kong, Kuwait, UAE, they're the the four teams playing off for a spot. So India have announced a strong squad. They've got most of the big names. Jasper Boomer's not playing because he's got a back problem, but Rohit Sharma's there, KL Rahul, Virat Kohli, Rishabh Pant, Hardik Pandya, uh, Jadeja. Ashwin's back in the, the frame, which is good for final word listeners, always a, a favourite of ours. Um, Bhuvi Kumar is in there as well, which is which is good. So uh, they've got you know a strong lineup that they're they're trying to get everything ticking Ahead of that World Cup. When does it all start, Jeff? End of August. So it's about three weeks away, two maybe two weeks away. Because I think this is the thing that 
this is the thing that's discombobulating me most, you see. Mm. I think I've got so used over the last eight or nine years to the international schedule being sort of mm-hmm. becoming more 12 months of the year. Because yeah. when I grew up, there was the English season and then there was everywhere else in the world. And they all happened at the same time, so it was quite difficult to keep in touch with everything. So you had to choose the bits that you wanted to keep in touch with. Whereas recently we've started, you know, Cairns has been used as a test venue and things like that have been happening. And people are going to the West Indies even when they probably shouldn't because it's hurricane season um, mm-hmm. in order to fulfil fixtures. But just at the moment, in the, the last three weeks, it's felt like the entire focus of cricket, or I'd say focus, the entire amount of cricket really being played mm. is almost entirely happening in England, and it's the 100. Which yeah, is kind of, yeah, which is is kind of, which is kind of strange. I mean, India did play West Indies in that uh, five-match T20 series, which included, to me, one of the, the fun, funniest most tragic, most brilliantly cricket things that, that can happen. Obed McCoy took six for 17 mm-hmm. in one game. Six for 17 in a T20. I think that was the one India, uh, West Indies won. And in the next yep. one, he took two for 66 in four overs. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he got two for... But, I mean, this is the, it's the wonder of T20 cricket. It's what mm. partly makes it so exciting is, is how yeah. bowlers could be can be on such a high one minute and on such a low the next. Mm. <laughs> but that was pretty much the only other cricket, really. And you had, you've had got Zimbabwe playing. Yep. Pakistan played a, a test series in Sri Lanka. Yeah. Yeah, New Zealand are, are playing some... They're playing a one-day tour in the West Indies, which, mm-hmm. are, again, is such a weird thing. Is it? it just feels like it's something that's being a fulfilment mm. for the ICC. But does anyone go? Um, how many people are reporting on it? What significance does it have longer term? It's mm. yeah, it's strange. It, I, I find these I find these weird one day series quite strange. Yeah, well, I, I assume New, well New Zealand will be playing T twenties as well, so that'll be T twenty World Cup. Could they not play prep. a test though, Jeff? If you're going you all the so. way from New Zealand, I mean mm. New Zealand to the West Indies takes quite a long time. Yes, yes. It Once would... you're there yeah. and you're playing three te- three ODIs and three T twenties, yeah. Play a test. Do, yeah. Maybe you know. Do do the women's format. Yep. Do yep. a points based format. Do mm. something to make mm. it more interesting for us. Mm. Other than, you know, I've logged on to Crick Info. What cricket's on today? Oh, Oman against Nigeria. Yes, mm. a, a hundred game. Oh, yep. uh, and West Indies, New Zealand T Twenty. Mm. Entirely contextless. Mm. And it has a point. It has a purpose. But it, it it's. It could be made so much better, couldn't it? Mm. Yeah, it, it is. I don't know. It's a strange space that we're in. I, I share your sense of, of some level of disconnection and uh, disconcertment. But all we can do is push on, Daniel. That is all we can do. And oh, I think yeah. I think we can. Uh, I think oh, we can yeah. call a call a close to proceedings today. If you have anything else that you need to add, I don't think I do. I, I, what I would say is I've. I had a lot of work done in my house recently. Mm. And, uh, with a very lovely guy called Paul. I love mm-hmm. it a bit. But he's the messiest builder you've ever met in your life. So he's, he's gone. And I'm sitting in, in the room that has mm-hmm. been one of the many rooms that's been newly done up. And I've been loving it. But because it's night time, I can see all the tiny splashes of white paint on my window that I'm going to have to try to get rid of. And I, there's probably a way of doing it. 
Is it turpentine? I don't know. I'm not that kind of a man. If anybody on the final word could tell me how to get rid of caked-on tiny <laughs> splashes of white paint from a window easily using nothing but a cloth and a rubber mm. glove. I could do a rubber mm -hmm. glove. Mm -hmm. Please let me know. I suspect that Michael Googlay will have the answers if you consult him in the meantime. But yes, any, any painters and dockers, any decorators, any interior designers out there, get in touch with Daniel Norcross and let him know. This is part of what the Final Word community is all about. We're going to have, the day after this episode goes up, there's a long interview that Adam Collins did with Adam Zwar, who's a, a scriptwriter, filmmaker, TV maker, and now book writer from Australia. He's written a book that's largely, it's sort of about cricket in a way. It's using cricket as a way to explore other things. Uh, so that interview will be coming up in your feed uh, 24 hours or so after this episode goes out. So keep an eye out for that. He's a very interesting character uh, with an interesting story to tell. And that has been The Final Word. Jeff Lemon and Daniel Norcross, thank you, Dan, for filling in this week. A joy. As always. Uh, the show is on the Bad Producer Podcast Network, edited by Dave Collins, and you can support it at patreon.com slash the final word. If you're so inclined, we would welcome that with open arms. Uh, we will return for story time on the weekend. We will be into the numbers, into the history, into the tales. All of that's coming up and uh, whatever else pops up in the feed. The feed is a very active beast these days, uh, so keep an eye on it. There's always something in there, something new. Something... You're making me quite... I'm quite scared of the feed now. Mm, I'm quite scared mm, of the feed. Should mm. I go to the... I'm not sure I should go to the feed. Mm. Well, if you... You said, did... feed, you said feed and beast in the same yes. line. And it's... Feed, mm. feed the beast. That is, all, that is all that we are here to do, is feed the beast that is the internet. Isn't that right? All right, that's enough for us. Uh, signing off. See you next time. I had to go about it.